Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Always a joy to be here. Congratulations on your church's 20th anniversary. Uh, yes. It's a beautiful anniversary. What's the thing for that 20th anniversary? What's the uh, is it silver? It, it, I, it, I think 25 is silver. 25 is silver. I think uh, 20 is 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 clay or something. All right, nice. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but we had a fun time on Sunday. And yes, we have been around for 20 years now, and it's been a great blessing. I came as a first pastor, but it was about 18 years ago. Uh, the church began just a few uh, years, a year or so before I came along. So, well, congratulations, my friend. Thank you. So, we've got some interesting texts here. Our first one is Haggai, Haggai 1, verses 15b through 2 9. And here we've got the, you know, this post exilic text. They, the Israelites are back from their exile and they're trying to build the, uh, the temple, uh, rebuild, they're working on rebuilding things and the rebuilding's not going great. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of slowed down a little bit. And the prophet is speaking into this kind of very concrete context where the people are probably a little discouraged and wondering if, if this thing is ever going to be what it once was. Yeah. I think this passage is really, really interesting passage because it, it pulls us into the new covenant age. Um, for thus says the Lord of hosts once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord. Silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. Postmillennial dude, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, so you're saying that here things are looking up for the God's covenant story with Israel, but probably in ways they don't that are counterintuitive than what they think, right? That's right. I think historical historically the setting is that they came back and they rebuilt the house of God, of course, and it was smaller. You know, it wasn't like the, there were people that remembered um, the temple from Solomon today, and they remembered that this is a dwarf-looking temple. But Just what a, is it's, it's always the thing when you do the church building project, never go smaller. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and they did they until until Herod came along, and uh, I'm not sure if Herod built on or totally reconstructed the temple. Do you know that? Do you know whether Herod did I don't that? know. I don't know. But, but at the time of Herod's temple, they called the second temple, uh, in Herod's time, it was the largest man-made structure on the earth. So it got bigger, 
But I think the point of this passage, and I think all of those return from exile passages have a similar theme, and that is the the reality of the coming kingdom is greater than it was before. But of course, the temple itself was not to be made an idol of, right? So it wasn't about the size of the temple. It wasn't about the bricks and and stones and all that. It was about uh, what God was doing in dwelling with his people, the very idea of temple. And because of the exile, because of Jews being everywhere in the world, there was a, a tremendous presence of God and the teaching of uh, the true God all over the world as a result of the exile. So I think it points to something much greater. And of course, by the time we get to the New Testament and Jesus, uh, there's going to be uh, an even greater dwelling place, an even greater living stones temple. And the book of Hebrews at the end of the book cites this passage, by the way, that I will shake uh, the heavens and the earth that's cited in Hebrews. And I think the reason why is because uh, th- uh, there is a prediction in, in Jesus' words, of course, Olivet Discourse, that the temple will be destroyed. The Herod's temple, that is, will be destroyed. But there is a greater temple, he says, and John enigmatically, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise again. It'll be built again. And of course, the temple the true temple, the, the fullest sense, and I think this is true in the Old Testament too, but we do have the physical temple. But the truest sense of temple is, as Paul says in First Corinthians 3.16, you are a temple of God. The temple of God are the people of God. The dwelling place is the people. At the end of this is cited, in, this is cited at the end of Hebrews, because I think Hebrews predicts the destruction of the outward earthly temple in Jerusalem but it predicts how much greater is the Zion above. We've come not to the mountain, but to the heavenly city. And I think this interpreted Christocentrically is pointing us to the fact that heaven is ruling earth now, that the true Mount Zion above is ruling now. And now, as God's people gather to worship, um, is it greater? Is the glory? Is the glory greater? in all the world now than it was in, say, 100 B.C. Well, especially with Kanye now. I mean, Jesus is king. What, what are you going to say about that? Um, obviously, post-millennial. I mean, well, It's interesting, too, because when you look at the way the new covenant works, it's always ex- more expansive, right? Like in the old covenant, only men get the covenant sign. In the New Testament, men and women, both, you know, if baptism is sort of the new covenant sign, it... it you know, you have, uh, you know, a tribe of priests in the new covenant, the whole people of God are a royal priesthood. And and, and, and in the old covenant, you have one nation called for the sake of the nations. And in the new, in the new covenant, you have, you know, the people of God being one new Israel of every tongue, tongue, tribe, and nation. And here the temple of God is, is the glory presence of God. Uh, it's not just that people can go to it, but it can actually go out into the world. Like the presence of God is, yes, is as mobile as a tabernacle, but as glorious as the temple. Right. I, I think, um, you know, some of my theological insights I get from guys like Jim Jordan and Peter Lightheart, and they make this point that there was a kind of remnant return covenant that the, the original, um, early kind of fulfillment of the quote new covenant passages has to do with, what God was doing at that time in the return from exile. And 
it was, you know, they take the, the line, and I think it's true, that it was wrong to say, to think this is a smaller, inferior temple. That if you believe the prophets, God is doing more in the world. God is doing a greater work as a result of the exile, and precisely, I think precisely because many people were, many Jews were all over the world. And now, you know, Paul could say, or Acts could say, that in every city, in every city in the Roman Empire, the scriptures are read, meaning that there are synagogues everywhere in the first century world. And, and that really is true. And we have, um, again, this, this strong uh, sense that God was preparing the world for the coming of Christ. Come and babe, won't it be fine? Best is yet to come, come the day you're mine. Come the day you're mine. On to 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5, and 13 through 17. Here we have, you know, both of the, the Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica are concerned with the coming of Christ. And, he, you know, it, this is one of the things that, that the early church is, is figuring out, like, when is... Christ going to come back and is anybody going to miss it? You know, and so Paul's saying that, uh, you know, you're not going to miss it. You know, don't worry about this. Don't be shaken in mind or alarmed, uh, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. I mean, that's pretty interesting. Like you imagine people saying, you missed it, gang. It's here. <laughs> and you missed it. Like, I mean, you guys fell asleep praying or something. And so he's saying they haven't missed it. And God's promise to, uh, you know, finish things and, and become all in all will happen. And then, you know, he speaks some encouraging words about being thankful for them, that, that they're the first fruits of this new reality. Yes. Well, this is, this whole passage is kind of a hard passage. I mean, it's uh, I was just listening to some discussions on eschatology uh, between John Piper, Douglas Wilson, Jim Hamilton, and... Um, See Sam Storms. You just need to throw Storms. Paula White in there, and it'd be like a great, <laughs> yeah. great mix-up. I have no idea what she would say, but um, they were all asked the question. I've been asking some debates as well, and and that is, um, what is your hardest passage? You know, for your view, um, if you're a millennial or pre-millennial, what's your hard passage? And and when it came to to Doug Wilson, who's post-millennial like I am, he said, well. First and Second Thessalonians, and how to harmonize Second Thessalonians with First—that's the hardest passage in the Bible, and I agree. That's that's the most difficult passage. In fact, um, I did a, a a series of teachings on that a couple of years ago, and um, I'm just trying to pull it up now because I went through I went through the uh, the commentaries I had, and I pulled up all the statements, all the key ideas. Okay, so. You know, here, in other words, you've got who's the man of lawlessness, who's the restrainer, who, you know, and what's your eschatological view, right? You just, you just look at all those things. They're very complicated. It's very complicated, but, you know, the day is going to come and destined for destruction. Uh, he, this person who exalts himself in the temple of God. Now, what are these things mean? Now, I went through all the commentaries I, and all the different views I had, and I have uh, a, a chart of about 10 are so different interpreters, guys like John Calvin and Matthew Henry and, and then contemporary commentators. And I went through and I, I put it out there. Who's the restrainer and who's the man of lawlessness? And 
virtually they are disagreed on every point. And even if you have the same eschatological view, um, you still have disagreements. So, for example, um, uh, my my view, the post-millennial preterist view, Greg Bonson thought that the restrainer was the Jews and the man of lawlessness was Nero. Whereas uh, Kenneth Gentry, uh, another guy that has the same view, he says the restrainer is Claudius, not the Jews, but Claudius, a uh, Roman emperor, and that the um, man of lawlessness also is Nero. But then another uh, well-known preterist, Gary DeMar, says that the the restrainer is the Roman government and that the man of lawlessness is the high priest. So, I mean, even among a very specific point of view – you have differences. So I would just submit this is one of the most difficult passages to figure out exactly uh, what it does. I do have a, con- you know, I do have some, my own convictions about it, but it is a hard passage. Um, and I think it's a, an interesting passage. The main point, of course, is give thanks to God, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, because God shows you as the first fruits of salvation and sanctification. So my brothers, he says, stand firm and Hold fast. So I think that's the, the key. You know, whatever we make of the, the details of it, we may have to work on this for a while uh, to figure it out. But the main point is continue to be faithful to Christ until he comes. Yeah, it's interesting. Ben Witherington, one of the New Testament scholars from, I think he's still at Asbury Seminary, says, you know, that for him, the key thing to look at here is that the man of lawlessness is in such contrast to Jesus. Right. He falsely puts himself above and exalting instead of Jesus, who is the truly exalted one, yet humbles himself. Like there's all these contrasts in the description. And then also, like, it's interesting, too, because I think it's whatever, like, false teaching or whatever sort of kind of this, whatever this idea that's being peddled that's like, hey, you missed it. I mean, Paul's kind of like, come on, do you think God's going to like, you know, you belong to God. Do you think he's going to finish it in a way that you're left out? I mean, come on, think of what you know about the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ. You're the faithful one. You know, whatever mysteries there are about the return of the Lord, it, it can't be that God would leave his chosen ones out and you'd miss it. I mean, there's some basic things about, hey, you know, the coming of the Lord is the coming of the Lord. Right? <laughs> and, and, and you know some things about the Lord. And so, you know, trust in him. Yeah. Speaking of eschatology and the Lord, we go on to the gospel reading, which is Luke 20, verses 27 through 38. What a, it's such an interesting passage because you have the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection ask Jesus this question about uh, levirate marriage, kind of, you know, if basically if a guy, if a guy's wife, di- if a guy dies and his, it, 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 the widow is left with no children, you know, the covenant, sort of the kinsman redeemer, you know, takes up with her and tries to give her a child. So she's not socially alienated. And this happens several times. And then he says, you know, it, it, it finally the woman dies in the resurrection. Who's she, whose wife is she going to be? And it, after the seven, you know, because these seven had all, you know, married her and Jesus kind of uh, like any good person, any good, any savvy 
uh, questioner in the media rejects the premise of the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He says, hey, well, this isn't really how it works. <laughs> right. Well, I, Jesus often uh, does not answer the question he's asked. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he often answers the question people should have asked. So that's very common in his d- dialogue. Um, yeah, this is a an interesting passage. Um, first, you know, the, the idea of that Leverite marriage concept um, is is interesting one. Um, I think we have to realize, of course, that there's a just uh, you know the, the the Bible is is written in an ancient to an ancient world um, that uh, does not know about such things as OAC and the New Green Deal. So um, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't, and they they still eat meat and things like that. You know, um, but I would just say you know they're 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 creating a kind of catch-22 for them. That's what they're really doing. The, the point of this is the Sadducees, of course, who say there's no resurrection. That's the that's the theological premise. But if you notice the conclusion of the argument, and oftentimes the epilogue is the point, oftentimes the end of it is the, the main point, um, Jesus is saying, now he is God not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. That that's his point. Is there is resurrection? There's re- so whatever you do with the details of it, a lot of times parables and stories, the details are not to be focused upon. We don't need to worry about Jesus. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, but we don't need to worry about the unjust steward, you know, doing a sleight of hand and um, you know cutting people's debts and all that stuff to get position. It, the point of the story is the epilogue. Usually, in that case, it was about money. In this case, it's about resurrection. So they lay it out for him, and he says, "This is the this is the reality. There is resurrection to come." Now, of course, the resurrection age was inaugurated with Jesus himself. And that's why in Acts chapter 4, the apostles were preaching, quote, the resurrection that had come. Uh, Paul would say, if any man is in Christ, kinaikatesis, new creation. Um, he would say at the end of, of the book of Galatians that circumcision and uncircumcision, these don't matter. What matters is New creation. This is Isaiah 65 language. This is, there's been a breaking in of the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's the main point. And there is a resurrection age that is broken in and will be fully and finally consummated at the resurrection. Now, we don't agree about much eschatologically. Look <laughs> at 2 Thessalonians, for example. The church has not really come to many conclusions about the future. How We've, camping has. <laughs> yeah. Well, except for the fact that Christ was returning in 1988. No, sorry, 1989. Um, or 1994 was Harold Camping. And then 2000. And a couple other times. Yeah. Wasn't it 2000? What was it? 2000. There's been a few. 10? I'm trying to remember. I remember doing a, a study. I think it's 2011. Yeah. 2011, Christ was returned. Because the very day that he was supposed to return, I did a Bible study on. Um, that Christ was not returning in in 2012 or 2011 or whatever. And actually, I predict... I'm glad a, you did that study because your people would have been like the second Thessalonians people. They thought they would have missed it. I, I know. And and I even predicted this, that the world is not going to end in 2012. I predicted that, you know? So I was right about that. Makes me a prophet, I guess, or some sort. Yeah, I want to take you to the race, <laughs> Um 
It's so, but but I think we don't agree a lot about a lot, but we do agree about this. We agree there's a resurrection of the body, and that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. That, that's that's all we got. Um, so you know, pull out your micro views on all this stuff. And and sure, I mean, you got to work through the text. You got to argue for your own position, and and it's fascinating to be able to hear different points of view on on those details. Um, but at the end of the day, what we need to say for orthodoxy is coming ju- to judge the quick and the dead and resurrection body. That's it. <laughs> That's all we've got. Um, Post mill, pre mill, a mill, pre trib. Pre-wrath rapture, post-tribulational rapture, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, you got to work through the text, but what we know is resurrection. And that's what he's saying here in Luke 20. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things I think it's interesting here in this text is that you have the Sadducees here, and you can always remember how that they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad. They're sad, you see, because they mm-hmm. have no hope for the afterlife. And the Pharisees, they're not fair, you see. <laughs> exactly. But it's interesting because oftentimes— I mean, this is oversimplification, but a, a lot of times the Pharisees, they're sort of more traditional religious believers, right? They're the more the conservative ones. Yes. And they are often trying to trap Jesus. They're Republicans. Exactly. Exactly. Jesus looks like a liberal to them, but it seems like to the Sadducees. Who are and that's more, why progressivism is Christ-like. Exactly. So, Amen to You know, that, the brother. Democratic Party, which endorsed slavery from the very beginning, that, that that's Christ-like. <laughs> Unlike the re- Republican Pharisees. Yeah. So you have the Sadducees here are sort of the more aristocratic, don't believe in the afterlife. It, and it seems like they're trying to catch him for, for some from the sort of more liberal or more demythologized side, because he looks like a Pharisee to them. And so it's interesting that he rejects the premise of their question saying like, no, because it seems like they're trying to make him say, look, this is why the Pharisees are so dumb. What's God going to do? She's, you know, if you have this sort of afterlife and she's going to have seven husbands and sort of trying to make him look absurd. And what's interesting is he rejects the premise of the question. He says, no, you don't understand. There's, there's continuity and discontinuity, right? The world will be uh, made new, and yet it, it will be different than this world. And, and we won't give and give in marriage because, you know, if marriage is like a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, the, 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 hev- the heavenly wedding feast, that, that this is going to be exponentially bigger. You know, we won't give and receive in marriage the same way because we'll yeah. all be, there'll yeah. be this, you know, grand new creation. You, yeah, that's right. And you have to kind of appreciate the the wit of of this question and the setting and, and how it comes across. Because, it, of course, it would have been radically different if to say, well, th- there was this um, – if, if, if the roles had been reversed, it's okay, if, if it would have been like, well, there's seven women and, you know, and, and one guy, then it, in that culture it had been like, okay, well, that's all right. <laughs> But because it's it's uh, seven men, you can't. You see what I'm saying? It's it's polyamorous versus polygamy kind of idea here, and that's the setup of the question: is she can only be one man's, you know, wife, right? She you, you can't have right. That that's the that's the cultural context of that. Why that right. question right. is, is such saying, a gotcha see, question? See, you know? see, this is like if, with your view of the resurrection, like the Pharisees. This is stupid because you're going to have to have polyamory or something. We don't believe it. it's a lot simpler. The, you know the way we're just going by the books of Moses here. And yeah. the, the other that's interesting right. thing too, I think it's so amazing what Jesus says is, is, is his argument. He says his his conclusion is that the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself shows in the story of the bush where he speaks 
of the Lord as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all, all, of, all of them are alive. That's an amazing argument, sort of saying the fact that God, that Moses, God can say, tell them I am the God of, not I was the God of, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. And so that th- this, you know, this is sort of a compliment to the Second Thessalonians text. You know, whatever your, you know, whatever the mysteries and however things play out, that we can trust in God because in Him He's the God of the living, not the dead, and and we have new life in Him, and that new life will not end. That's right, and and I think here too, you know, it's it shows a certain kind of um, hermeneutical craftiness that Jesus says because he, he <laughs> argues because they only believe in the first five books of Moses, right? So He's right. like, I'll make the argument. From the book of Exodus. Yeah, like, I don't right. need to go to the prophets or anything like that. Right, right. And he said, he's, you know, I don't need Daniel 12. Um, I, I could just go from, from the, from the most foundational, you know, Jewish text ever, right? The revelation of, of God to Moses at the burning bush. It's, it says, it's present tense. Yeah. And it's, not, it's like the <laughs> that, that also, that also proves a certain, in a certain <laughs> sense. And I think there's a number of cases like this, but it proves that uh, all the words matter, you know, the, the yeah. grammatical concepts, matter there's a there's a certain kind of verbal uh truthfulness to scripture i would say inerrant uh, maybe not all your listeners would would like that word but but certainly if you can make an argument from the tense of a verb that would suggest that the the words matter that the words are theopneustos passe theopneustos graphe right the for second timothy 3:16 the all scripture or every part of scripture is the way i would render that Every part of scripture is breathed out by God, even the verb tenses, apparently. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting too, because Jesus seems to be practicing here the hermeneutic of Emmaus Road, right? Like, you know, the disciples on the Emmaus Road, when, when the resurrected Christ appears, he teaches them that all of scripture, beginning with Moses, you know, beginning with the, yes. with the first five books, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, of the Tanakh here, the first, it all points to Jesus, the one who, dies and and rises for God's people. And so, you know, here he could even say, look at the burning bush here. I'll show you how this works. Like, I I think that that's the key to, you know, it's yeah. Luke 24. I mean, he's going to make this point in a few chapters here, but Luke 24, right. If you're not seeing Jesus in it, you're, you're doing it wrong. You know, you're not doing it right. If you don't get Jesus out of it. And if you don't get death and resurrection out of it, you're doing it wrong. And that is really the key. I think that concept Death and resurrection is just a, it's a it's a key that unlocks lots of weird bits in the Bible, like some of those stories in Second Kings. You know, uh, just just look at them. They're, they're, Jonah, you know, this the, the key is the coming death of the Messiah and his resurrection. And of course, the next thing that that text says in Luke twenty four is that the Christ must suffer and die and rise again from the dead. But and that repentance be proclaimed all the nations. In other words, the the global victory of Christ is also necessary to see in all of Scripture because that's the point. And why so? Because the whole covenant with Abraham and the Jewish mission was to be a light to the nations, so that there'd be a restored new humanity in the world, a, a, an undoing of the fall of Adam. And if you won't take my word for it. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2.15, that yeah. God is raising up a new Adam, a new humanity, says the New Revised Standard Version. That's the whole point. 
Um, well, I pray that uh, Sunday and congregations all over the place that you know our listeners are involved in that Christ will be unlocked from the scriptures and that they that people will see Him. Amen and amen. And uh, what do you think about that Kanye West album? I haven't listened yet, but I hear it's awesome. <laughs> it's thanks, it's, Greg. Uh, it's good. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today, and thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.